Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 10 I followed nearly a dozen data streams, examining the most recent mem feeds first from the previous two days, the marketplace bombing. The convergence web was incredibly complex and deeply layered, composed of 59 solid data points and over 500 null void sectors. 97 people had been caught in the blast. 37 were killed instantly. The 59 data points accounted for the memory stacks that had been harvested from the dead, the wounded, and witnesses who had allowed their memories to be shared. The null voids, buried between the verified data points, were a minor convergence web in their own right. Each void was a link in a larger web based on the implied but unrecovered observations of the people present at the market. The data points were organized and coherent enough to present a faithful recreation of events, but the system AI presented the voids as markers for missing information and extrapolated statistical data from the surrounding clusters. Official estimates said that 700 people had been at the market within an hour of the explosion, but that figure didn't account for post-explosion crowds that had gathered out of curiosity or to help. The high number of visitors accounted for the many null voids processed by the AI. Visitor estimates were calculated from statistical records that averaged the traffic trends of visitors to the marketplace over the last decade and took into account local population counts, deaths during the war, weather fluctuations, fishing and crop yields, social trends, and the number of vendors and purchasers. At the center of this web was a seven-year-old girl. She was four feet tall and weighed approximately 50 pounds. Her brown hair, which matched her eyes, was pulled into pigtails. She was a cute child, and according to the mathematical speculations, 276 people had seen her. She was wearing a small yellow vinyl backpack, scuffed sneakers, faded jeans that were worn thin at the knees, and a light pink jacket that was zipped to her neck to hide the vest of explosives beneath it. She held her head high, in a sort of odd defiance that was unnatural for a girl as young as she was. The war had made everyone older than their years. She carried herself with pride, and she made eye contact with several people, curtly nodding her head in acknowledgement. She stood at the center of the market, a large open parking lot with vendor stalls set up for the weekend, and waited. People passed in thick clumps, bumping and jostling one another, but somehow steering clear of the young girl in their midst. She was a jetty in a sea of shoppers. A few brushed up against her. A large Asian woman almost knocked her over, apologizing brusquely as she shoved past, though she was clearly not at all sorry. The girl's face flushed with anger, as if she'd had enough. The explosives she wore weighed almost a quarter of her body weight. Her backpack was loaded with nails and small ball bearings. When she detonated, shrapnel arced away from her body and into the crowd around her. The violence was sudden, loud, and horrendous. None of her memories could be recovered. The explosion had vaporized her body. I watched the turmoil of her actions through a composite filter. Fifty-nine memories merged by their commonalities presented a seamless view. The safety protocols were active, lest the adrenal dump of fifty-nine emotional sirens kill me. I doubted my brain would survive all of the conflicting physiological inputs. Fear, horror, shock, adrenaline, flight responses. Pain receptors fired as I relived the trauma of shrapnel and the evacuation of hormones at the moment of death as I lay bleeding on the ground, squirming and in shock. I watched the dazed survivors, their eyes glassy, try to collect themselves, trying to comprehend what had happened. A few had nails sticking out of their arms, chests, and faces. Ricocheting metal had turned the face of the man next to me to hamburger, my ears buzzing, deafening me. I didn't need the complete sensory dump to be set on edge by what I had witnessed. A girl so young and haunted, capable of taking her own life and numerous others. The conviction in her eyes had been frightening. She hadn't been angry until the fat woman ran into her, 
but even that had quickly been replaced by almost docility, but that wasn't quite right. The calmness of assured purpose had soothed her and given her the power to obliterate herself and those around her. The next data stream was another labyrinthine web of mnemonic episodes collected from the 101 bombing. Traffic had been heavy, but was stalled to a halt by a car crash. Confusion was the predominant theme of the memories, which had come from drivers caught at the edge of the blast zone or survivors who had witnessed the chaos or had been peripherally involved. After multiple explosions, it became clear that the crash and the subsequent explosions had been coordinated. The lead vehicle had initiated the crash and caused a pileup of 30-some vehicles before drivers were able to stop. Traffic quickly grew congested between the exits, and three vehicles had smartly positioned themselves to block other motorists from exiting. The ramps onto the 101 were blocked by traffic attempting to merge, unaware of the problems on the freeway. The lead car and all three cars blocking the exit ramp had been rigged with high-yield explosives. Smack dab in the middle was a fifth car, also packed with high-yield explosives. A sixth car had inadvertently been caught in the pileup, but it ultimately made very little difference to the plan. The main aim of terrorism is to cause terror. The psychological effects of inexplicable acts of violence can be far more devastating to the group mentality than strategic warfare. Sometimes there is virtually no difference between the two. The state of mind behind the first strike of shock and awe warfare is not terribly distinct from the mindset of suicide bombers. What separates them are the responses of a state actor and the acknowledgement of warfare and battlefield conditions and readiness. The drivers on the 101 had no warning. Many woke up that morning under the delusion that combat had officially ceased several months prior. They weren't aware that for some of their fellow commuters, the war was ongoing. The synchronized explosions were huge. They took out neighboring vehicles, causing a chain of additional explosions. Shock and panic set in quickly as people tried to escape the blast zone. Some succeeded by sheer miraculous luck, but most did not. Shrapnel tore through windows, killing passengers where the flames failed to reach. Soon, a stampeding crowd of people who had escaped their vehicles moved between the lanes of traffic, seeking safety in numbers. A contingency existed for this, too. Farther back in traffic, well away from the explosion radius, gunfire erupted. A four-man death squad dressed in body armor and wearing masks took flanking positions across the highway. Shooting at random, their goal was to increase the body count and incite further panic in the already heavily stressed crowds. They killed 40 people, chasing them down the off-ramps, shooting into the cars stalled there, killing the men, women, and children inside. Eventually, they stripped off their armor, abandoned their hardware, and disappeared into the confused crowds. I had not known about the shootings. The explosions were well publicized, but the news report I'd read had been heavily sanitized. I remembered congratulating Jamie for his efforts. The memory turned sour and left me queasy. Thinking about the little girl in the marketplace, my stomach threatened to heave itself out. I backtracked through the convergence web to find the center point from which all of the data had populated. I was searching for one particular name, and I found it. I reloaded the web for the marketplace bombing, hunting for that central spoke. Again, I found the name and face I had known would be there. Jamie Kristoff. I choked down the rising gorge and moved farther back through the data streams. I knew he had been involved in other terror attacks. I had even colluded in some, but I was slowly realizing that I had only ever known of a small fraction of the operation parameters. Jamie and his group of freedom fighters were highly compartmentalized, and they operated in cells. Nobody ever knew more than his or her small piece of involvement, so much so that I would not have been surprised to learn that the shooters on the 101 had been as surprised by the explosions as the other drivers. Before me loomed the enormity of all the things I did not know and did not want to know. I had been willfully ignorant and was content to stay that way. There were hundreds of data streams in Alice's data bank and easily twice that many convergence webs. Thousands of episodic memories, capsule recognitions, and multiple layers of complex null voids. Alice and her team of memorialists had searched for them all, hoping to fill the voids and further strengthen and add to their data sets. But I did not want to know about any more of it. I was feeling nauseous. My limbs were heavy and fidgety. 
I unplugged, needing a breather. Your face is pale, Alice said. She was sitting across from me, leaning intently toward me. This is, I didn't know how to describe it, intense, unbelievable, horrifying. I had thought of Jamie as a fighter, a patriot, somebody I could cheer for. I had done small jobs for him in an effort to further his cause. We had both been ready for the war to be over and were stuck on the losing side. I had wanted my old life back, or at least some small sense of it. But seeing a child detonate herself in the middle of a crowded square for him, and the fact that he would use a little girl to serve his own ends in such grotesque fashion, I couldn't fathom that. Extremists have come up with a hundred excuses for their actions, a hundred rationalizations to help them cope with their choices and to shrug off responsibility for the immorality of their behavior. Two data streams in, and after a small, cursory glimpse at several others, I found myself re-evaluating Jamie, my relationship with him, and even my own actions. I had taken jobs from him, killed for him. The Shang, for one. I'd been hired to do that job by both Jamie and Alice. He'd wanted the PRC general dead to further his own war, while she wanted the memory chips to further her own ends. I knew without looking that I would find a data stream devoted to the general. You need to see the rest, she said, maybe guessing at my thoughts. What else is there? I asked. What do you know about the Buckley Massacre? Not much. She squeezed my hand, urging me back down the rabbit hole. I took a deep breath to center myself and plugged in. I waded through the streams, working my way backward. One of the earliest archived entries had been from during the war. The date was familiar, May 26th, the day of the massacre. The memory was another long, complex, interwoven map of convergences. I searched for the Shang and was surprised to find that he was but one data point among thousands of others. I had figured him to be a more central figure in all of this, but the convergence point, the individual at the heart of it all, was a null void. The first half dozen spokes to come out from the central null were also voids, with the data points finally populating the web two or three layers beyond that. Some of the null voids had been identified and had either a name, a photograph, or, in a few cases, both. This time, Jamie was not the central null void. I didn't even see him within the first few layers of faces. There were hundreds of firefighters, policemen, National Guard, and U.S. Army. Each bore a rank designation, and somebody had done the extra legwork to uncover their years of enlistment and length of service. I rescanned the profiles and studied the faces closely, but I couldn't find his. I was sure he had to be there, though. I went through the files again, taking my time, memorizing each face and studying the contours of jaws and cheekbones, eye and hair color, hunting for a match. The man identified as Samuel Hodgson had a passing familiarity. The name rang a bell, too. Captain had asked me what I knew about him. I looked closer, reshaping the angle of view and drawing the face nearer. Small creases ran below his eyes, and the shape of his nose was about right. Hodgson was younger, and his face was unscarred. I called up the protocols for image analysis and tagged Hodgson for study. I received more than a 100,000 hits and applied a smart filter to give me viewing angles of his left side. In the post-riot images, he was wearing a short-sleeve combat shirt with armor plating over it. He was smoking a cigarette and was clearly shaken. His left arm was exposed. Remembering Jamie's outdated tattoo and the animated nanos, I tagged a second filter using my mem-ident and ran a correlation. A Times photographer had shot a profile picture of Hodgson. The photographer had fired off a six-shot burst of images in rapid succession, and I could see the animation forming in freeze frame across each image file. A small puff of smoke coming from a skull grew larger in each successive image, then disappeared. Hodgson was Kristoff. Captain had questioned me about Hodgson, then about Jamie, asking me what I really knew about the man. I realized I knew far less than I had thought, but I was satisfied I had found what I was looking for. I stared at the faces again, noticing more similarities between Hodgson and Kristoff. The rest were strangers united in a common cause. At the center of the Berkeley Massacre's map was a small regiment of men from the U.S. Army. The most heavily populated data points at the outlying rings were college students. Most were anti-war protesters, but other grassroots organizations had joined the coalition to express anti-violence, anti-corporate greed, plain old anti-business, anti-technology, anti-military, and anti-nano-everything viewpoints. 
The gathering had grown into a large demonstration for a multitude of voices, but most of the people in the crowd had been nothing more than hangers-on needing a purpose. The groups had originally united to protest the U.S. and Canadian government's policies of internment for Asians populating the western seaboard in the wake of PRC and PRC-sponsored terror attacks across North America. Critics recalled the Japanese-American internment camps across the West Coast following the attacks on Pearl Harbor during World War II. The military had established exclusion zones across the entire Pacific coast and rounded up anyone with Japanese ancestry and settled them in relocation camps. Based on the need to protect the country against espionage, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the executive order that had interned more than 100,000 people. The ruling had never been overturned. Finding itself at war against Asian aggressors once again, the military had an easy claim for forced segregation. Lawyers and advocates spoke out against the targeted discrimination, but lower-level courts were powerless to overturn Supreme Court rulings. When the cases finally worked their way up to the higher levels, it was too late. Soldiers from the 9th Infantry Division deployed across the campus of the University of California, Berkeley, pushing through resistant crowds that booed and condemned them. Rioting had broken out the night before, and explosions had rocked the Oxford Research Unit, the Haas Pavilion, and the Valley Life Sciences buildings. Students ransacked the Li Ka Shing Center's stem cell research labs and destroyed as many tissue cultures and as much imaging equipment as they could. The research and nanofabrication labs housed inside Sutarja Dai Hall had not fared any better, and even the cyber cafe had been decimated. Rioters had taken sledgehammers to the walls and floors, stolen whatever they could carry, and started fires in the garbage cans. The entire campus, from Walnut Street to Durant at the southern edge, had turned into a disaster area. Students set their own housing complexes on fire and camped on the grounds, content to live like bums if they thought it would send a message to the higher-ups. The 9th ID set up snipers in the carillon of Sather Tower, 300 feet above the expansive campus. When things got rough for the ground-level troops, the bird's-eye snipers were able to precisely fire high-velocity rounds into the crowds. They took a lot of lives that day, but few regarded them as heroes in the days and weeks that followed. UC Berkeley had many foreign students. PRC citizens and second-generation PACREM Americans accounted for more than half of the university's enrollment. The military had orders to detain all 16,000-plus students for questioning, which consisted of a long series of loyalty questions, interrogations, and intensive background checks. Nearly all of them were relocated to detention centers in Kansas, Arkansas, Montana, Texas, and New Jersey. In a show of solidarity, many student unions banded together to harbor fellow PACREM students and oppose the military. The initial protests on campus had been organized by the Stop the War Coalition, which was known for its attempts to remove military recruiters from the campus and its regular anti-war and anti-discrimination protests. Several members of the group had also been arrested early on for attempting to provoke violence against the police and National Guard. Many of the PACRAM students had turned to the Doe Memorial and Bancroft Libraries for shelter, near the Memorial Glade Green Zone. A thick concentration of protesters had gathered at the Glade, thousands of students holding signs and banners bemoaning the evils of American capitalism, corporatism, and militarism. They burned effigies of the president and dolls dressed in military uniforms. They set the American flag on fire and cheered and danced around the burning embers. They were loud in their persistent shouts, their voices filled with hatred and anger toward the men and women in uniform. Fuck you, they yelled, throwing their fists into the air as the 9th ID set up a line to oppose them. The squad commander attempted to give instructions and orders, but the crowd of protesters shouted over him, drowning out his words. They yelled for America to die and for these fascist pigs to get off their campus. Tempers flared and raged, and the shouts and voices quickly turned to action. Bottles were thrown, first plastic, then glass. Bricks and chunks of concrete followed. The soldiers were dressed for crowd control and had come prepared for the riots. A line of men stood behind thick, clear shields, watching the violence unfold through toughened smart glass helmet visors equipped with enhanced retinal displays. They held up well against the antagonizing forces, and the squad commander tried repeatedly to calm the protesters, giving them numerous warnings to disperse. On the commander's fifth attempt at reasoning with the crowd, a beer bottle flung at his head shattered against his helmet. A piece of glass cut his cheek, and he decided then that the time for reasoning was over.
The crowd was growing restless, and the violence was clearly escalating. Armed with high-pressure hoses, they shot powerful jets of water into the crowd. They lobbed canisters of tear gas into the center of Memorial Glade, but a few protesters had been wise enough to bring masks, and they refused to be cowed. Those who had been blasted with the hoses found their feet again and charged forward, angry and hurt. Rubber bullets put down a few. Protesters from other sites around the campus struck up their own agitations, and numerous melees reached from one end of Berkeley to the other as crowds lashed out against anybody in uniform. Military, police, and even campus safety. Any notion of crowd control went out the window almost as soon as army soldiers set foot on the glade. The mob assaulted their front lines, and the violence grew congested and bloody in short order. Someone somewhere threw a Molotov cocktail into the thick of it, and flames lashed out against soldiers and protesters. More Molotovs lit the air, and Hodgson screamed as his sleeves and combat gloves caught fire. He dropped and rolled in the grass to smother the flames. A young girl rushed up to him and kicked him in the face. Then she stabbed him with a large shard of glass she had in her hand. Hodgson was dazed, on his back, smoke curling up from his arm. She straddled him and jammed the chunk of glass beneath the safety visor into his skin and yanked brutally. She tore open his face, gouging a thick trail down his cheek and jaw. He screamed and punched her, hard. She fell off him, her nose broken, both lips split open. He rolled and got his knees and hands under himself. Blood rushed down his face and into the grass. It took him a few moments to collect himself and find the strength to stand up. The medicines were already stitching his face back together, but I knew it wouldn't heal properly. It would leave a long, ropey scar as a reminder of that day. By the time he was on his feet, she was gone, off to find somebody else to attack. The soldiers had been instructed to use rubber munitions, but at some point during the confrontation, they had switched back to standard steel-jacketed armor-piercing rounds. Even though some of the college kids had thought to bring their own gas masks, not a single one of them wore anything more protective than blue jeans and t-shirts. Whether the change in ammunition was an order passed down the chain of command, or simply groupthink seizing control of the armed forces had never been clarified. The few after-action reports that had been made public, or rather that had been unearthed by a small group of investigative journalists, all indicated that the soldiers hadn't been consciously aware of switching over to lethal ammo. Considering the hectic state of affairs and the stress of combat, I tended to believe them. Instinct and rote maneuvers took over, and in the heat of the moment, any filled ammo magazine was a good one, even the wrong type. I watched Hodgson eject a magazine and drive in a new one. The wound on his face had reopened, but the blood flow was minimal. Pebbles of glass caught in the fabric of his combat fatigues glittered in the dying daylight. The sun set to the echoes of gunfire and screams, and the night held the promise of more violence. Streetlights had been broken or shot out. Dancing flames of burning trash and cars and from dorm rooms set ablaze by vandals illuminated the campus. The uniforms fought to subdue the protesters, and dead bodies lay in the memorial pool, turning the water a dark crimson that was almost black in the dusk. Corpses, mostly protesters, as well as a handful of policemen and soldiers, littered the campus. Their blood had made thick puddles of the mud and stained the grass of Memorial Glade red. Weariness seized the crowd and the soldiers. The fight had gone out of nearly everybody, but a few protesters were perpetually belligerent. They were shot down quickly, lest they inspire others. For a moment, Everything was still, as if the world were on the edge of a gasp. Weariness turned into exhaustion. The rioters gave up, their faces screwed up with confusion and defeat. Police and guardsmen ordered everyone down to the ground, then went about the business of handcuffing them. Children's faces shifted and hollowed as they realized they were not quite adults prepared for the harshness of reality. Whatever light had been in their eyes before the battle was extinguished. The military separated the Asians and tagged them for the camps. The others went to jail. The 9th ID regrouped and prepared to storm Doe Memorial Library. With the ground secured, helicopters flew in, and soldiers rappelled down and through the library skylights while the ground-level troops hustled up the stairs and breached the main entrance. Beneath the library was the Gardner Collection, a four-story underground structure that housed the university's collection of three million volumes. 
Fifty-two miles of bookshelves filled the space, and a subterranean hallway connected the Doe and Moffat libraries. Inflatable mattresses, blankets, pillows, backpacks, propane lanterns, and tabletop grills, along with assortments of canned goods and packets of dried meat, were scattered between the aisles of books. Sleeping bags were arranged atop study tables. The foreign students had made the tunnels and stacks their temporary home while waiting for the war to end, so they could resume their lives and their studies. They watched with wide eyes as the military descended upon them. They were frightened and confused. Some didn't even speak English well and did not understand the orders being issued to them. Soldiers tore away bedsheets, yanked off pillowcases, and kicked over mattresses. The soldiers rummaged through bags, dumping their contents on the floor, spilling papers, pencils, pens, calculators, and textbooks. They examined the food, carelessly tossing it aside. They were on the hunt for weapons, or anything that could be used as a weapon. Knives, forks, and maybe spoons that had been sharpened to a point. An older Asian man and his wife strode forward, their arms extended to either side of their bodies, protecting the cluster of students behind them as they stood before the soldiers. Both were getting up in years, and the man's hair was gray. The woman had a bird-like fragility to her, although her eyes were diamond hard. Please, he said, they've done nothing wrong. Both were vaguely familiar. Their daughter had inherited her father's eyes and nose and her mother's mouth and the severe glare. Alice's parents. Hodgson pushed the woman away roughly. Clearly distraught at the sight of his wife being manhandled by the soldier, the man strode forward, but his reward was a punch to the ribs. He stumbled forward, and I could see Hodgson was quickly losing control. You must stop this, the woman said. Her voice was stern, hardened from years of teaching, I guessed. Hodgson was done fucking around. The last few hours had run him through the ringer, and he was clearly tired. Still, his eyes were calm and calculated as he raised his gun and shot her point blank. The bullet entered below her right eye and punched through the back of her skull. Her blood splashed against her husband, and his mouth hung open in a perfect, disbelieving O. Oh. Then Hodgson turned the gun on him and fired. None of the soldiers reacted, except to lift their guns. I watched groupthink prevail again as the soldiers opened fire on the huddled mass of students. Some ran between the stacks. Soldiers gave chase and gunned them down in the aisles. So scared that she was shouting in Chinese instead of English, one girl spun to confront the soldiers. She slipped on the loose sheets of paper and nearly lost her footing. She grabbed onto the bookshelf, dislodging a row of thin volumes and old bundles of paper lined with handwritten text. She regained her balance in time for a hail of bullets to send her down on her ass. I watched as the soldier, emotionally disconnected from his action, backed away to regroup with the others as the girl's chest slowly deflated with her dying breath. I was fatigued and stank of flop sweat. Although what I had seen had been horrifying, a part of me was disappointed. I was used to feeling the rush of the DMT, and it had been ages since my last high. I missed it and struggled to push aside that neediness. I tried to figure out how Alice must have felt when she'd seen all this. She looked at me expectantly, her lips slightly parted. She pushed forward in her chair. Do you see now? I did. Hodgson, that was Jamie. The burns, the scar, that had to be him. He's aged a lot since the war ended, don't you think? He must have played around with the nanos, reversed them somehow to cause cellular decay so that he could look years older. He did a good job, too. Took me a few scans to key in on it. I thought about her relationship with Jamie and about the Shang job. It didn't jibe, and that nagged at me. He was linked in, but aside from his own memories, any correlates were void. I didn't have the energy to plug back in, but I thought maybe Alice and I were finally on the same page. I sat still for a long minute, thinking. I'd gotten the Shang job through Jamie, but I knew Alice had used him as a middleman. She had wanted him dead, and Jamie had gone along with it. According to the Convergence web, they were tangentially linked. Jamie doesn't know you're a memorialist. No, very few people do. So you both wanted the general dead, but for different reasons. General Yuan was born as a U.S. citizen. He was at Berkeley during the time of the riots, in hiding in the basement of a residence hall with a few others. They were taken into detention and put in a relocation camp in Carlsbad. 
As part of his loyalty test, he was offered the chance to give up his citizenship, which he took. He was turned over to the PRC as part of a prisoner exchange program when the war ended, part of the Northern Alliance's effort toward peacekeeping and restoring stability to the region. The PRC was impressed that he had so willingly severed his ties with America that they offered him the option of enlisting and granted him a field commendation and promotion. The publicity stunt helped the Pakrim ruling body turn him into a media darling. The celebrity went to his head, though, and he thought he could do anything. He had a penchant for whores, and he enjoyed hurting them. I couldn't tolerate any such transgressions, and I certainly would not allow that type of behavior to be repeated by others. So you killed him to send a message to your other PRC clients, I said. She gave me a slight downward turn of her head, which I took for a nod. And Jamie? And Jamie wanted the opportunity to be able to claim credit for the murder of a well-regarded and much-publicized official in his little guerrilla war. He had no idea there was ever any intersection in their lives, I asked. Even if he did, what were the odds that it would surface? Again, he had no idea I was a memorialist or of the work I was doing. Convergences are an incredibly complex tapestry. Sometimes the data leads to important discoveries. Other times, less so. Did you know they had converged? No. This was one of those important and surprising discoveries. I wanted retribution against the Shang for his transgressions against an employee. Being a collector, I was naturally interested in his memories, but at no point did I suspect it was linked to other matters. But you knew Jamie had been involved in the massacre before you hired me. No, she said. With convergences, she seemed to search for the best way to piece together her words. Oftentimes, we have disparate events, occurrences that we believe are unrelated. On one end, I had the Berkeley Massacre and a small web of convergences from the few memory stacks we were able to access. On another end were protest rallies, or maybe the events of an ordinary day in somebody who would go on to become a protester there. Sometimes it takes an intermediate, an outside source or occurrence that links them and brings it all into focus. That's how it was with Shang. He was a linking point, but not central to the spoke. She paused again, collecting her thoughts. I've had this map of the massacre for a long time now. I'd known about Hodgson, but not about Jamie, that they were one and the same. When I first met Jamie, I had felt a certain familiarity, but I did not know why. His cover story was plausible, and he was much older than Hodgson, so I dismissed any worries. Until recently, I'd had no reason to doubt him. But somebody made you doubt him, I said, starting to fill in some of the blanks. She nodded. Captain, I said. He saw it almost instantly. It was ludicrous. But then I saw it as well. And now you've seen it. We ran algorithms to compare facial recognition and defined similar characteristics, defining features. The feedback was impossible to ignore. Why would you show all this to Captain? I asked. It was part of my deal with him, to keep you alive and secure your release. Sniper rifles weren't enough. He wanted access to everything I had, on Samuel Hodgson and Jamie Christophe. She leaned back in her chair and crossed her ankles. She looked tired. She pushed a loose lock of hair back behind her ear. Her small, economical movements were a nicely feminine contrast to her business-like demeanor. When I closed my eyes, I still saw images of the girl in the marketplace. Jamie's suicide bomber. Something hard and cold unfurled in my belly as my thoughts turned again to Mesa. I thought about Jamie and considered what Alice had said earlier. Her words rang in my head. He has Mesa. I want my daughter back, I said. I want to hire you for another job, she said. I nodded for her to continue. I knew what she was going to say before the words were out. I want you to kill Jamie. I nodded again. Her eyes shot wide and she was suddenly alert. I've lost contact with my driver, she said. I is dead. Muffled gunfire erupted upstairs. Chapter 11 Alice handed me a gun. It had a good heft and felt comfortable in my hand. A Rossi 38, six bullets in the chamber. Copper wad cutters equipped with Honeywell micro-electromechanical systems. 
more black market military-grade goods that made me wonder how far and deep Alice's reach extended. The Honeywells were smart bullets, built from muscle wire that allowed them to change direction in flight based on targeted heat signatures, good for shooting around corners or from behind cover. It grew quiet upstairs, but the stillness was broken by a squeak of weight on the floorboards and the sound of cautious footsteps. We have to go, I said. Alice ordered the memorialists to gather their memory chips and get ready to leave. She pushed aside a filing cabinet, revealing a recessed fingerprint scanner in the wall. She pressed her thumb, index, and little finger of her right hand to the pad. A hidden door popped loose with a soft click, exposing a tunnel. She pushed the cabinet back into place, hiding the scanner again. Above us, raised voices pled for their lives and were answered with gunfire. Alice urged the group through the tunnel, touching the shoulders of each as they passed, quietly whispering assurances to them. Her security measures upstairs would keep the gunmen from simply opening the door and waltzing down the stairs. They would probably use debt cord to blast the door out of its frame, then breach the access well. Come on, she said, finding down the tunnel with her gun. She pulled the door shut behind us, and there was a slight pop as the seal was reestablished. Luminescent panels in the ceiling lit the way for us. It's an old prohibition tunnel she said. This restaurant has been in my family for many generations now. Must have been handy. Oh, yes, she said with a small grin. It had been used for smuggling alcohol back in the 1920s, but it also connected several of her family's businesses and made for a convenient passage between buildings and handy storage space. We hustled down the tunnel. A soft thump behind us told me the basement had been breached. It was simply a matter of time before the intruders figured out Alice's escape hatch and followed us into the corridors. The tunnel was part of a system, splitting off into other arteries that ran beneath Chinatown. I watched the memorialists split off down different pathways, heading in different directions and disappearing from view. Where does this go? I asked. Across the street. We can come up behind the restaurant, by the alley, where the car is. There could be more troops there, I said. We don't know what we're up against or how many people are after us. No, we don't, but we need transportation. It won't hurt to look, and if we need to, we can always retreat back to the tunnels here. Presuming they don't find it first. Nothing about this situation is perfect, Jonah, and we don't have much in the way of options. Damned if we do, damned if we don't. She nodded. Exactly. Come on, through here. She pressed her right hand to another scanner, repeating the gesture she had used a few minutes before. The door opened with a soft click, revealing a small room with refrigeration units, canned goods, and cartons of chicken and vegetable stock. The labels were all in Chinese. Aside from the foodstuffs, the room was empty. We went up the stairs and into another empty room that was badly in need of a fresh coat of paint. I figured we were in the small apartment building across the street. We stood quietly, listening for any noises. After a few moments of silence, we proceeded to the side exit to the alley a windowless steel door that only opened from the inside. Alice had tucked a data pad into her waist earlier. She took it out and fiddled with it. I looked over her shoulder at the display and smirked. Radar? It's come in handy, she said. Like the tunnel. Just like. We watched the data load, giving us a wireframe view of the alley. Two human-shaped heat signatures glowed orange on the screen. A warm blue glow defined the weapons they carried, but did little to tell us what kind of armaments or defenses they possessed. It's a small squad, I said, surprised. It's not PRC, then. They would have the streets cordoned off. And we probably would have heard them coming from a mile away. This is surgical. PRC will be here soon, though. There has to be a patrol in the area, especially after the marketplace attack. We need to go, she said. The car? Alice shrugged. Two on two. Even enough odds. You go left, I'll go right. She pressed herself against the wall while I pushed open the door. The soldiers had been facing the restaurant, but they responded quickly as we rushed out of the apartment complex, our guns raised. Alice and I fired several shots, letting the bullets take care of the rest as we hurried to the car. Finding the heat signatures we were aiming for, the smart bullets sought out flesh between the gaps in the soldiers' armor. Even though they had chest plating and Kevlar shirts and pants, the bullets were able to sniff out the exposed skin of their necks and faces and blast through. One fired his assault rifle as a death spasm ripped through him, but the recoil arc pulled the gun wide, spraying the car with bullets. The bulletproof windows chipped under the gunfire but held strong. The bullets flattened into the glass, thick concentric circles webbed out from the point of impact. I tore the driver's side door open while Alice climbed into the back seat. 
The front window was down. High sat there with a spent cigarette dangling between his lips, a bullet hole squared up against his temple. Ash fell as I pushed him over into the passenger seat and used his thumbprint ident to start the car. I had my hands on the wheel when the door flew open. I turned in reflex, my face leaning into the punch, which rocked me sideways. My vision blurred and a loud ringing filled my ears. I was sure my nose was broken. He grabbed the front of my shirt, jerked me out of the car and threw me to the ground. I kicked backward, scrambling away from him. I saw the two dead soldiers. This guy must have come from inside the restaurant after hearing the shots. He came forward, gun raised, ready to shoot me. The back door of the Lincoln opened and Alice quietly emerged. She took a quick, silent step forward, her gun leading the way. She pushed it into the back of his neck and fired. The bullet tore clean through, obliterating the soldier's data port and its delicate wiring. I scrambled toward the other two corpses, crab crawling across the rough, unevenly patched road. We need to chip them. There's no time, she said. More are coming. I kept going, trying to get my feet under me, but I was still dazed as the adrenaline did fucked up things to my body. The signals weren't getting through my sluggish brain. I tried to protest, but she shut me down quickly. I'll take care of it, she said, an awful edge creeping into her voice. We have to leave, she screamed at me. Her panic knocked some sense back into me, and I looked between her and the bodies. Then the choice was taken away from me. The sharp smack of boots on concrete rushed toward us. The men's voices were raised, but the gunshots had dulled my hearing, and I couldn't make out their words. Bullets tore up the concrete at my feet, and I scrambled backward. Alice grabbed my arms and helped me up. We dove into the car. I fell into the driver's seat, keeping my head low. The rear end of the car was under fire. Automatic machine gun rounds pocked the glass and thudded into the trunk lid. I hit the accelerator hard, and the big car surged, going nowhere. Still in park. I yanked on the selector as the bullets got closer. The rational part of my mind knew the car would be fine, that we were relatively safe, but I knew that the gunfire was drawing more and more attention, and the PRC, to us. Its wheels grinding for purchase, the car lurched forward. I peeled out of the alley, squealing the tires as they finally caught the pavement. Alice said, Go left, then another left at the light. Her voice was surprisingly calm and collected, but a trace of fear in her eyes betrayed her worry. She was quiet for a moment. Then she said, I need to know the routes. Where are the checkpoints now? She was talking to one of her contacts within the PRC. She sounded nervous as she recounted what had happened at the restaurant and reported three dead in the alley. They weren't PRC, she said. We don't know who they were. She looked over at me. Go right, right, right here. Good, keep going straight now. She was quiet for another few moments, then she directed me to make a left turn. I need a favor, she said, then paused and sighed. Fine, I will consider your debt cleared. Another pause. Two dead men have information I need. Send PRC militia to my restaurant immediately, in the alley. You have to hurry. I drove casually, merging with the traffic. My flight reflexes were telling me to go faster, to race away from all of this as quickly as I could. My heart was a jackrabbit kicking hard at my ribs. I watched the speed carefully, fearful of drawing attention to us. My eyes roamed back and forth from the rear view and side view mirrors, watching for a tail. I changed lanes, getting all the way over to the right, then turned and looped around several blocks, Alice guiding us. Both of us waited for familiar cars to turn with us. None did. After a few tense minutes, I let out a long, slow breath, the tension slipping away ever so slightly. I spent several long, paranoid minutes making sure no one had followed us as Alice told me which streets to avoid. How many people know about your beach house? I asked. Not many. Why? Alice's house overlooked the deep blue depths of the ocean. We have to get rid of this body. She mulled it over, weighing the risks. She decided the attempt was worth it and contacted one of her employees who went to check out the property and secure it. Sweat crept down my face. In the passenger seat, a thin stream of blood trickled from the hole in High's head. Below his earlobe, the flesh was pure and smooth. Where are his data ports? I asked. If they had done a download, we were sunk. His arm, Alice said. Every time I'd seen High, he was wearing the same outfit. A suit jacket, solid black tie, and a button-down shirt. The same as he still wore. His undisturbed clothes gave me a sliver of hope. He's not a memorialist, 
Alice said. Not a dreamer. My heart finally started to ease up, my pulse slowing. My shoulders were tight, but the pressure was finally releasing. What are his upgrades? I asked. Nothing memory-based. He had a standard encrypted comm package and monitoring software. Nothing that could be traced or recorded or downloaded. Made sense, I thought. Given her line of work, Alice had to be careful with her employees. It wouldn't do to have the hired help committing everything to hard memory. Even this extra layer of security wasn't foolproof or impenetrable. The tracking software would warn her if he veered away from their standard arrangements, and anyone who was able to break him and make him spill whatever secrets he knew wouldn't be able to do it fast enough to catch Alice unaware. Although we hadn't seen any indications that we were being followed, we still took a long, circuitous path through the city, absorbing the patterns of movement around us, slowly growing more relaxed, but hardly complacent. Her source had come through for us. We didn't come across any checkpoints or random patrols. However, distant wailing sirens rushing past us set us both on edge. It had been a long time since I had driven a car this nice and responsive. It gained speed quickly, and the brakes were equally reactive, so I had to be gentle with the pedals. Even under the weight of the armor, Kevlar padding, and bulletproof glass, the Lincoln was still easily maneuverable and smooth. Sleek and black, full of muscle, the car was a shark weaving through traffic. By the time we made it to the house, night had fallen. I put the car in the garage, and Alice introduced me to a muscular man named New. She went inside and came back with a large white bedsheet, which we wrapped around high. She carried a bucket of heavy chains we'd found in the garage while New and I carried the body down to the beach and into a waiting boat. New piloted us out to sea. The running lights were off, and we saw no other boaters out on the calm water. We left the engine running, dropped anchor, then wrapped high in the chains. It took all three of us to hoist him up and over the portside gunnel. We held him for a moment and Alice closed her eyes to say a brief, silent prayer. She nodded when she was finished, and we pushed him off the edge and into the water. We watched as the ocean claimed him, and he sank out of view. Alice said nothing, but she wiped away a tear and sat by herself on a bench. When I went to her, she asked me to leave, her voice soft but raw. I stood in the small pilot house with New. Neither of us spoke while he took us back to shore. We parted in silence after climbing the steps from the beach. The house was safe enough, and Alice claimed that the three of us, plus her doctor, were the few individuals who knew of this property. Regardless, we would be keeping the guns close. In the bathroom, I washed the gore off my face and neck. The suit jacket and white shirt were both ruined, so I stripped them off and dumped them on the floor. I was too jazzed to sleep, and my mind was racing with questions. I was on edge from the adrenaline dump. Nervous and twitchy with too much energy. I stood on the deck, letting the evening breeze wash over me. My eyes adjusted to the dark, and I watched the black expanse of water shifting in the night. The door slid open behind me, and Alice's footfalls were soft against the wooden deck. She put her arms around my waist and pressed her face into my back. Her breath soaked through the fabric of my undershirt and warmed the skin beneath. Her hands moved across my chest down to my waist, seeking proof of life after so much death. I turned in her grip, and she stared up at me expectantly as I leaned down to kiss her. She kissed back, hard, and untucked my shirt, pulling it off. I ran my fingers through her long, soft hair, bunching it up in a fist to pull her face close to mine, then pulling her head back to expose her slender neck. I kissed her shoulder and collarbone and nibbled at the base of her neck. Her fingers pressed against my skull as she breathed heavily. Her cotton robe fell away easily. Her small breast fit well in the palm of my hand. I ran my tongue over the scars on her chest, sinking to my knees, kissing my way down her body as she leaned against the railing. My heart was racing, and in the wake of the day's earlier violence and the adrenaline come down, I was spent. But we needed each other, needed the comfort of one another, needed to feel alive after so much violence, murder, and death. I nuzzled against her hips, the small patch of pubic hair soft beneath my lips, and she shifted her weight, parting her legs from me and raising one over my shoulder. I could taste ocean salt in the folds of her skin, and I inhaled her scent, exploring the crevice of her body with my tongue. 
Her fingers gripped the sides of my head again, pulling me closer as she tilted her hips forward, moving against my face. She came, pushing me deep against her. She breathed hard and raggedly as her legs quivered. I kissed the inside of her thighs, slowly working my way back up her body. She urged me to my feet and led me back inside into her bedroom. I undressed and she sat on the bed's edge before me. She took me in her mouth and moved slowly, her tongue lapping delicately at the tip, and I had to pull away. She took my hands, pulling me down on top of her. I attacked her neck, and she arched and squirmed beneath me, her nails scratching my back, grabbing my ass, and forcing me deeper inside her. We ground our bodies tightly against one another, and I was breathless when I exploded inside her. She kissed me hard then wrapped her arms and legs around me, hugging me. I kissed her face, tasting her tears. When I rolled off her, she spooned against me, and we slept for a time. I woke up cold in a tangle of sheets and limbs. I pulled myself free and felt around the floor in the dark for my pants. I found the small tablet in the pocket and went into the living room. Naked, I sat in a plush chair and pushed the data spike into my port. It sent a small, icy shiver through me. I played around with the menu and the setting options. I wasn't interested in the webs and the spliced connectivity maps of groups of people surrounding a single event. I wanted individual memories, and I turned off the safety settings. The memory of the Shang's final moments hung over me. It felt like forever since I had done this, and I was rigid with anticipation. My mouth was dry, my lips felt chapped. I decided to go for it and let the rush of endorphins flood through me. My heart galloped on the verge of tearing itself apart, knowing that death was imminent. I felt what he had felt, and it gave me a rush because I remembered all of it from my own perspective. The feeling of power, the control of having a life in my hands, the weight of the gun. My finger curled around the trigger, and I whimpered in anguish, begging for my life. My heart raced, tears warming my face, dizzy from all the conflicting emotions. High from the adrenaline dump, I was both fidgety and fully in control. The warmth of muzzle flash bloomed against the back of my skull, singeing my hair beneath the flush of gases and heat. Then nothing. White light blinded me, and my body thrilled with the rush of hundreds of chemicals as my pineal gland emptied itself. The world tipped, and I fell down the rabbit hole into a vortex of colors. Breathing became difficult, but I was incredibly relaxed and comfortable. I sank deeper into the couch, letting the DMT flood through me. The mem ended too quickly and left my head feeling heavy. I spent the next few minutes fighting through delirium and trying to collect myself, feeling drunk and loopy. I crashed quickly and ended up in a funk. I was beyond worn out, but I didn't want to go back to bed. My mind was still racing, caught up in too many thoughts. I wondered how Mesa was doing and how she was being treated. I thought about the schoolgirl turned suicide bomber and about teaching Mesa how to shoot rifles and pistols, training her to take lives, trying to force her to kill. I wondered what kind of father that made me, and I loathed myself for all of it. I had never wanted to be a father. I didn't want to be bothered by all the bullshit parents dealt with. The crying, the diapers, 2 a.m. wake-up calls, the screaming and wailing. The idea of a kid was unbearable. I never understood why people put themselves through that willingly, or why some people wanted that so badly for themselves. I was intent on never letting it happen until, of course, it happened. Celine had wanted kids, but her pregnancy was a fluke. When she told me the test was positive, there had been a nervous hitch in her voice, and she'd struggled to keep eye contact with me. She knew how I felt about kids, and she was afraid of my reaction. My life, as I knew it, was over. And that was fine. In that moment, all of my defenses crumbled away with two simple words. I'm pregnant, she said. With those two words, I was a father. I couldn't hold back the smile or the tears, and I took her in my arms. We laughed, cried, and made love. 
Before I even saw the ultrasound or held her in my arms, that little girl-to-be wormed her way right into my heart and brought me a joy I'd never thought was possible. But I lost her. I had tried everything I could think of to earn her love and her respect, to be her father. She was fine as a child, but those teenage years had been brutal and she'd grown to hate me. Maybe I was too authoritarian, or maybe she knew I wasn't proper parenting material. She sensed it, the way animals sense fear. She turned against me and left a void deep inside me. She'd fought to become her own person while I'd fought to keep her in my life, which pushed her farther away. I missed her, and I missed the life we used to have. Driving her to school, sharing dinner at the table in our house with her mother, Celine and me helping her with her math and science homework before sending her to bed. All of that was gone, and I had never realized how badly I needed it or how much I craved that stability. Alice padded softly across the carpet behind me. She put her hand on my shoulder, then bent over to kiss me, stretching her fingers down my chest. You're crying, she said, surprised. I unplugged the data spike and set aside the tablet. Just thinking. She sat beside me and asked me what was wrong, but I ignored her question. I found myself needing the comfort her body provided, and she let me take her again. We made love slowly, and when I was spent, she lay against me. With her eyes closed, she asked if I was feeling better. I don't know, I said. I need to find her. I need to get back to the camp. Echo Park, she asked. I nodded. Echo Park was attacked. She's not there. Neither is Jamie. What? I shot up straight, pulling her with me. Why didn't you tell me? What happened? I was yelling, suddenly furious. I held her between both of my hands, squeezing her arms tightly. Fear crossed her face, but I didn't care. What happened? She twisted free from my grip and shoved me away, kicking herself away from me, to the other end of the couch. Whatever closeness we'd enjoyed evaporated. Captain, she said. She rubbed her arms and glared at me. Asshole. I didn't know. You didn't tell me. God, she said. There's so much happening. She looked away from me, down at the floor. Tell me what happened. Captain attacked the park. This afternoon, it was a total slaughter. They knew where all the PRC was stationed, how to get in and out. They knew the security protocols, shift changes, everything. They had a lot of inside knowledge. A cold stone dropped into the pit of my stomach. I already knew the answer, but asked anyway. Inside knowledge from who? From you, she said. You were their inside man. They trolled your brain, plundered you for all you had. You gave him everything. He damn near walked right into the park. He had snipers take out the guards overlooking Echo Camp while he led a ground party to take out the street-level forces. He went after Jamie, I said. I knew Captain wouldn't see any difference between the PRC and the park's inhabitants. How bad was it? Bad. He turned that park into a channel. But Mesa, you said she was with Jamie. They weren't at the park? They escaped somehow. Captain was looking for him, but couldn't find him anywhere. They disappeared. My sources confirmed Jamie was not among the dead. Neither was Mesa. Then where are they? I don't know, she said. He attacked the park today, before or after we were attacked. She shook her head. I don't know. Why? You think that was Captain too? I thought about Captain's regiment, their supplies, equipment, and their uniforms. The men outside of Alice's restaurant had used guns and worn clothing that didn't match Captain's. No, I said. I think that was Jamie. He was retaliating, sending a message. Does he know you trade with Captain, that you supply him? I don't know, she admitted. Then she conceded. Maybe. Did Captain lose any troops in the attack? Somebody Jamie could have trolled? Not that I know of. I paced the living room, massaging my scalp. A headache was growing behind my eyes. Fuck, I yelled, exasperated. Captain, Jamie, Mesa, this whole thing was fucked. What the fuck was I wrapped up in? Where had it all gone sideways? What was the link aside from me? What was missing? I couldn't focus. I had too many things running free in my head, and the pain was blistering. I was the link between all of them. I was what had fucked it all up.
I knew Jamie. I did work for him. I had admitted that much to Captain. His bullshit soldier boy idealism, fighting for a country that didn't even exist anymore, painted us all as traitors because... I swallowed and thought about it, then forced myself to admit it. Because we were terrorists. We attacked individuals without much distinction between soldiers and citizens, and we lived among the enemy. We blew up marketplaces and attacked innocent bystanders in traffic. I was on the very edge of a cell, a freelancer without any true loyalty to any one cause. Captain knew this, and he had soaked up every last drop of intel I had to offer. I had given up Jamie to Captain. I had given up those people in Echo Park. I had given up my own daughter. I sat back down. Jesus, I said, running my hand against the stubble of my scalp. I was sweating, and the hairs on my neck and arms stood on end. I did this. Alice looked at me, but didn't move. I wanted to feel the warmth of her body pressed against me, but I made no motion for her to come to me, so she stayed put, tucked into the corner of the sofa. I think Jamie knows you betrayed him, I said. She looked at me sharply. He sent his death squad to kill you, or to kill me, or both of us. Maybe he knows I gave him up to Captain, and he decided to punish us. Either way, that squad at the restaurant, that was Jamie. I focused harder on it and ran the algos, trace summaries, and comparisons. In the end, I was fairly sure the same squad that had killed all those people on the 101 had come after us at the restaurant. Then I feel even less remorse over their deaths than before, she said. Why did you support them? I asked. She didn't answer for a long time. Then she said, I am Tong, but I am also American. I was born here, raised here. I lost too many loved ones, too many friends in the war. The PRC is my enemy as much as they are Captain's and Jamie's. With those two men, I see equal goals, if not equal means. It is their idealism surrounding their methods that divides them. But for me, as an outsider, I see that they seek the same outcomes. They want the PRC gone, and I understand that desire. The PRC caused so many problems for all of us. They are the reason my parents are dead, even though Jamie pulled the trigger. She paused, choosing her words carefully. If we removed the PRC, there would have been no chance for convergence. If we charted it all as a system of data, the PRC would lie at the center of the convergence map, the root of all this evil and division. Supporting Jamie and Captain is good business, which is why I also provide an esoteric array of services to the PRC. I will not limit my customer base, even if I have moral oppositions to the systems and governments they serve, but it also allows me to learn things about those larger data sets. It gives me information, which has far more utility in the long run. Does that answer your question? Maybe, I said. I think so. After a time, she shifted back to my side of the couch, ready to reestablish contact. Your parents weren't Tong. No, she said. I came into this business through my uncle. I kept it secret from my parents. They never knew. After their death, my uncle raised me. In some ways, I find it a blessing that they died ignorant. She curled against me and looped her arm around one of mine, pulling herself close to me. She rested her head against my chest. I would do anything to have some semblance of my old life back. To have a family again. To be a daughter again. I kissed her forehead, and we stopped talking. We cuddled on the sofa, enjoying one another's warmth. I pulled a blanket from over the back of the couch and draped it over us, and we slept. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. 
To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.